So I am uh, excited that we are going to get to start a new series today. We're starting a new series today on the book of Ephesians, and we'll be in the book of Ephesians from now until Christmas. And I'm excited about this book because um, I think it covers so many things that are so foundational um, to our understanding of God um, and how we live as a church as a reflection of that in his power and in his purpose in the city. What I also think is cool about this book of Ephesians is that the context of the book of the people that it was written to and the city that it was written to um, is very similar to our city of Los Angeles. And there's lots of parallels within the context of that city. Um, the city of Ephesus was, was one of the largest um, commercial port cities in Asia Minor, really, which is present-day Turkey. And it was at the mouth of the, of the, of the sea, and it made it this, this um, the major trade route for the capital, uh, and really a capital of the Roman Empire in Asia. And so Ephesus was really considered this kind of the gateway to Asia. Additionally, uh, the city of Ephesus was known as a, as a center of, of worship, a center of, of pagan worship, one of the, the seven ancient wonders of the world, the temper, temple of the Greek goddess um, Artemis and, and the Roman goddess Diana were located just outside the city limits and were a big part of that city. And so people from all over the known world at the time traveled to Ephesus to, to visit this temple, um, to see it, to worship false gods. Um, and actually one of the biggest industries in the city at the time was, was little craftsmen making trinkets, um, basically like souvenirs, touristy souvenirs, to sell um, for the temple. And so many merchants and many people would move to this city um, to try to make a business for themselves and to, and to kind of focus around this temple and the industry that was moving in and out of the city. And so Ephesus also was, was a home to, to a large community of Jews. Um, and so there was a giant synagogue there in the city, and it was a city that was on a sea. It was a city of tourism. It was a very transient city. It was a city of great wealth. It was a city of great influence, and it was a city of false worship. Does any of that sound familiar to our city? If it doesn't, you haven't been here that long. Um, if, you are, if you're here longer than two years, you're local, right? That's the, that's, the, that's the story. But if you look at the book of Acts, you'll find out that the church goes out from Jerusalem, and as Paul begins his kind of missionary travels and his missionary journeys around to different cities, he stops at the city of Ephesus, and he ends up staying in Ephesus longer than he does in any other city that he, that he visits. And while he's there, what happens is God actually establishes this vibrant church with strong, faithful leaders, and in the midst of much opposition, in the midst of much persecution, what happens is that church just doesn't stay and, and keep to themselves they actually go out and they become this, this church planting hub, as it were, um, for all of Asia. And in Acts 19, it tells us that the gospel threat spread throughout all of Asia because what God did in this one influential city. And so that's the city of Ephesus. That's the context that Paul is writing to here. And Paul is in prison and he's in prison. And he wants to kind of like go back and, and remind this church, and, and write, he writes this letter to Ephesus, but it's not just for them. He also writes it so that it would be circulated to all of these churches and all of the people that have been sent out from this city to, to spread 
the gospel. And he writes this, this book to, to remind them and to encourage them in the truths of God that they would continue on in the purpose that, that God has given them in the gospel and that they would walk and live in light of the gospel. And so I think this book is really very fitting for us to study and to learn and to be reminded of in this transient city full of idol worship. And I think it's also very important because as we're, we're planning to send out another church and we are dreaming about becoming a church planting hub where many, many churches would be planted and many people would be impacted by the gospel all throughout our city and throughout our country and throughout the world. And so as we jump into this book, I wanted to stop and pray and then we're going to read the first 14 verses um, and really kind of teach us some foundational truths about God. Um, and our relationship with him, and kind of remind our hearts, really, that he is actually the one that's in control, that he's actually the one that's actually doing the establishing, that he's the one that's building his church, and he's the one that's building his family. So let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll read from Ephesians 1. Our Father, we thank you um, that we get to gather in this place this morning. Father, we thank you that your spirit is the one that equips us and teaches us Father, I pray that you would do that this morning. Father, I pray that you would take these very simple and foundational truths, but also truths that are very hard to believe and hard to understand at times, and that you would mold them deeply into our hearts and that you would guide us and that you would teach us and that you would equip us to live as your people in this city. Father, we want to see you um, grow your kingdom here. We want to see you expand our understanding and our hearts and grow us both deep and wide in your truths. And so, Father, we pray that your spirit would teach us this morning and teach us continually as we look to your word. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Ephesians chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, you can open there or it will be on the screen behind me. And so Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mysteries of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance and have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we inquire the possession of it 
to the praise of his glory. I think I could just sit down. Like, as I read that passage and as I, like, read that this week, I'm like, this is what I'm going to preach. I think I should just read it and sit down. Like, there are so many amazing things in this passage. It just, it says it all in, in many ways. And as I was reflecting on this passage this week, I think this may be one of the most God-centered passages in all of Scripture. I know that sounds odd, that, that it's, it's a God-centered passage in all of Scripture, but I think what happens often as we, as we look at Scripture, we, we know what, what God says, and we, and we know who God is, and we, we can read the Bible, and then we end up looking at the characters, and we kind of look at the stories, and we can either idolize them or demonize them, or maybe we can imagine ourselves in the story, which is one of the purposes of Scripture, that we would see ourselves in the story. But if we just stop there, what ends up happening is, is Scripture becomes very man-centered. And often our tendency as humans is to make it about us. And as we read his Scriptures, it becomes about us rather than about seeing God and how amazing he is. And so what's amazing about this passage is that as you read it and as you think about it, it so clearly flips the tables. It so clearly reminds that all the things in our life, all the things that we've done, that we're given, are actually about God and about his purposes. And we receive them so that others would be pointed to Jesus as well. It's so God-centric. It's God is the main one. That he's the one that's about bringing praise and glory to himself. See, the truth is that God doesn't merely wait and sit around um, for us to exalt him. He doesn't, he is not waiting for that. He actually takes matters into his own hands and he exalts himself. Listen to what Isaiah 48 11 says. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God is saying, I'm making sure that my name is given all the fame and all the praise and all the glory that is due. And I am the only one that's actually good enough to do that. You see, as you look all throughout Scripture, God does not merely act so that he would be worthy of praise. He's done way more than that. He's made it his aim to win praise. He's taken the initiative from all eternity and from eternity past, to exalt his own name on the earth, to display his glory throughout the universe. Everything that God does is motivated by his desire to glorify himself. And in this short section that we just read, it's reiterated, I can't even say that word, it's reiterated over and over and again that the goal of God actually saving us from sin is not just for us, it's for himself and for his own praise and for his own glory. Take a look at verse 5 and 6. It says this, he said, He predestined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse 12 says this, We who first hoped in Christ have been predestined and adopted to do what? To live for the praise of his glory. Verse 14 the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of 
His glory. From eternity past, God has made eternal decrees into the future with the purpose of actually setting up more praise and more glory for himself. The truth is that the praise of God's glory is not just merely a result of his actions, but also the goal and purpose of that action. He has in the past and currently governs the world precisely in a way that he might be admired, marveled at, exalted, and praised. That's what God is all about. I think the weird thing is I was thinking about this 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 week and just thinking about how are we how do we think about that when we hear that is that I think when we're confronted with this truth from our man-centered perspective in many ways this can kind of rub us wrong. It kind of can seem selfish or prideful that God is after all the praise and, and God is after all the glory. I mean like what about inclusion? Right? Isn't that like a big word? We're supposed to include everything all the time? No, God's like, no, it's no inclusion, it's just me. Is that even loving? That all God does is work for more and more praise of the glory of himself. I mean, I guess it's okay and it's right for God to be praised, but it doesn't seem right for him to seek his own praise. Didn't Jesus say that whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted? Yet we see that all throughout Scripture, God's clearly purpose is to exalt himself in the eyes of man. Maybe, maybe it rubs us wrong because we don't like other people that act that way. We don't like people that are seeking their own glory. We don't like people that are enamored by, their, by themselves and by their own skills and, and their power and their looks. I mean, if you just think about this in many levels in sports, we don't like athletes that play for themselves or exalt themselves. I mean, since LeBron has been here, 90% of the, t- of the talk in L.A. has been, how's he going to be a team player with somebody else? Even though he's the greatest player on the planet. It's why T.O. Like, got shut out of the Hall of Fame. I don't know if you know who T.O. is, but <laughs> he's a football player. I know you guys are, are artists, but like, I watch football. <laughs> 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 Voters didn't like his self-exalting attitude, and so they kicked him out of the Hall of Fame on the first ballot. And so he went and did his own little party. The, the NFL's now instituted rules so that people don't showboat. It starts this week, just so you know. Um, maybe it's why everybody gets a trophy now. We don't want to say, well, Johnny was actually the reason why we won all those games. He'd kicked in like five goals each game. But like little Susie and everybody else playing over here, we're picking flowers, but we should all get trophies. We don't like co-workers who go on and on about how they took care of something or how they thought of the next thing. Or we don't like people who, who take their knowledge and like specialized interest of those things and recite their most recent publications. We don't like it when men or women dress or drive cars to show off their wealth or their bodies. We think about people in, in that way. They're, they're not people who are authentic. They're people who only live for for second-hand praise and the compliments of others. They must feel insecure or trying to, trying to cover up some deficiencies. That's why they're, they're going after as many compliments as possible. That's why they're after their own praise. They're concerned with their own image, their own praise. We don't care about that. They don't care about anyone else except for themselves. And so when we see God here seeking His own praise and wanting to be admired, 
and doing everything for his own namesake, it kind of puts God in this weird category in our minds and our hearts, and we don't know what to do with it often, I think. We know that Scripture says that, that God, is, God is a God of love and that, 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 that He seeks not His own. But if, if God is a God of love, then he, he must be for us. And then how do we marry that with, with God being for Himself but for us? How do we put those things together? How do, we, how do we marry the truth of who we know God to be with this? I mean, if you look at Romans, you look at scripture we know that god is not weak we know that he doesn't have deficiencies he's not trying to make up for something in his life romans eleven thirty six says all things are from him and through him and to him that he was always there and everything else owes his existence to him that nothing can be added to him that isn't already coming out of him he's not making up for anything that he's deficient in we know that God is a God of love and who is for other people. But how do we put this together that he's for himself? John Piper, a pretty smart guy, he puts it this way. God is unique as the most glorious of all beings and totally self-sufficient. He must be for himself in order to be for us. If he were to abandon the goal of his own self-exaltation, we would be the losers. You see, the goal of God bringing praise to himself, the goal of, of God bringing praise and praise to, um, and the goal of God bringing, pre- man, my tongue is tied this morning, I need some water. The goal of God bringing praise to himself and the goal of God bringing pleasure to his people is one singular goal. I think you can think about it this way. What could God give us to enjoy that would show him as the most loving person? There's only one possible answer, himself. If God would give us the best, most satisfying thing, he would love us perfectly. All right, I guess it was really tied. I'm going to get some water. Thank you. All right. If God would give us the best, most satisfying thing, if he would love us most perfectly, he must offer himself for our examination, for our enjoyment, and for our relationship. Which is, by the way, the reason why God sent himself his son. Later on in Ephesians 2, it will tell us this, that Christ came that we might have access in one spirit to the Father. That the reality is from the beginning of time, God conceived a whole plan of redemption in love to bring humans back to himself. Why? Because just like we studied in Psalms, it says, In your presence is fullness of joy, and in your right hand are pleasures evermore. God is after giving us what is best. And it's not prestige, it's not money, it's not health. It's, it's not just even an understanding of him. It's a full-blown understanding and fellowship with himself where he gets the most praise and the most glory. The truth is, to be supremely loving, God must actually give us the best thing, and he must actually give us the best thing to delight in the most, and it's himself. 
He must give us Himself. Maybe another way to think about this is when, when you see or given something that you enjoy, what do you do with it? You praise it. You jump up and down and yell, touchdown. You say, look at this nice piece of art. Look what I just created. Um, I got back last weekend. I was hiking with Andrew and a couple other guys, in, and we spent some time in the eastern Sierra, and, and I came back, and, and as I was there, I was kind of observing other people. I'm not really a hiker, um, but we hiked, and it was great. Um, and I was talking with a friend of mine who is a big hiker here and actually gave me some of his gear, and so I was giving it back to him. And, and as we were talking about this trip, he spent most of the time praising the beauty of the mountains. I think it's a big reason why people go out there. They're looking for something to praise, something to worship. They want to see something that's bigger and greater and more beautiful than themselves. They don't go out there because they want to sleep on some rocks or eat some, like, some like I don't even, what do you call that food that's like dehydrated and you just pour some water in and it just turns into something. That's not why they go out there. Like, people don't go to restaurants and say, can you give me some dehydrated food? Like, they don't go to the... Anyway, um, they're looking for something to praise. The world rings with praise. I was walking through Ralph's this morning, picking up communion bread, and the song that like came on the speakers over top was like, I just want to praise you. Like, you, don't, you know that song? I think it's like, well, it's an 80s song, but I remembered it when I was a kid. Anyway, you should look it up. I think it's George Michael. But anyway, um, the world just wants to praise something. Lovers praise their companion. Readers praise their favorite book. Decora- uh, decorators praise their stuff that they decorate. Directors <laughs> praise their favorite movie and their favorite actresses. It's why you can get more people in this city to go to an Oscar party than your Super Bowl party. Because people love to praise what they're doing and what they're aspiring to do. This city praises all kinds of things. We praise the weather. Isn't it great that we have the best weather in the world? We got the beaches right here. We praise the food and wine that we get to drink in the city. We praise the colleges that are around. We praise the history. We praise the flowers. We praise the mountains. The point is, we praise all that we enjoy. Why? Because the delight is incomplete until we express it in praise. Our delight in something is incomplete until we express it in praise. I'm giving you all the smart guys this morning. C.S. Lewis said it this way. If we're not allowed to speak of what we value and celebrate what we love and praise, what we admire, our joy would not be full. Therefore, if God is truly for us, he would give us the best and make our joy full. He must make it his aim to win our praise for himself. That's That's the aim and the goal of God. You see, it's not because God needs to shore up some weakness or some, some, some um, incompetency or some deficiency in himself. It's because he loves us and seeks the fullness of our joy that can only be found in knowing and praising him, the most beautiful thing in the universe. It's why, for God, self-exaltation is his highest value. When he does all things for the praise of his glory, as Ephesians 1 tells us, it is the ultimate act of love. He offers us the only thing in the world which can satisfy all our longings himself. And I think, in fact, 
It's how that base understanding is how we then make sense of the next parts of this passage, is the, the, the hot topics in this passage of predestination and adoption. See, if you go back to verse 5, and it says, In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. What is clear here, and what is clear in many places in Scripture, is that adoption was actually part of God's plan. It was his idea. It was his purpose. It was not an afterthought. He didn't discover one day that, that like against his plan, against his foreknowledge that humans had sinned, that they had orphaned themselves in the world, and then he came up with this idea of adopting them. No, Paul said that he actually predestined adoption, that he planned it a long time ago. Verse 4 says he chose us in him, that's Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Before God even breathed creation, even spoke creation of this world, before we ever existed, God looked on us and looked on our need and he looked on his son crucified and risen and as all sufficient for our sins. And because of that, God chose us holy and blameless and predestined us to be adopted. For real. Come on. Just to be clear here, this happened before the creation of the world. Before you and I did anything good or bad. God loved us and his expression of adoption in his, into his eternal family um, uh, for joy didn't start when this world started. It reaches back into eternity. What that means is your adoption, my adoption, is not based on your fitness. It's not based on your worth. It's not based on your distinctives. It's, it's based on him alone. I was here yesterday, there was a work day, and I was building a shed in the back for the garden, and I was talking, and I was working with this woman, and I had known her from a few years here at the school, and we, we got talking about, and she's like, I'm earning some good points today. And she's like, I need all the points I can get. She's had some checkered past, which opened the door for me to talk about, it's a good thing we don't have to live that way. The good news is that that we don't have to live in that miserable existence trying and hoping that we have enough points to tip the scales. We just put enough things on there so we get to spend eternity with God. No, I'm actually rooted in God's eternal purpose and God's eternal grace and it's no work of my own. And that's really good news. The good news of that, too, is that that your adoption and my adoption is not fragile. It's not tenuous or uncertain. God will not adopt you and then find out that you're not worthy to be adopted. He doesn't start the adoption process and say, oh, I thought I was looking for a kid that actually, like, was going to follow me and listen to me. I had no issues. I was going to look for this kid that was going to love me back in the way that I wanted to be loved. No, he doesn't do that. He knows going into being adopted that you and I are unworthy. And yet he still chooses us and predestines us for adoption. And it's firm and it's sure and it's unshakable and has nothing to do with us. And so we can't earn our way into it and we can't earn our way out of it because he decided before the planet even existed. Can I tell you, that is crazy love. That is unbelievable in many, many fashions. 
Verse 5 goes on. I mean, this is so much stuff in here. I'm not going to preach for hours, but there's a lot here. Verse 5 goes on and tells us how this adoption process is completed. It says that he predestined us in adoption through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. We are adopted through Christ Jesus. What does that mean? What does it mean? It means that to be adopted by God, he had to die for it. Verse 7 says the same thing. In him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So what took place in eternity past before the foundation of the world was that God saw that we were be sinners and he planned the death of his son so that he might raise him up from the dead so that we could then be forgiven and God's wrath could be removed. Through all that foresight and through all that act, we are then adopted into his family. So our adoption is not based on, what, on us being worthy or cute or attractive or like we're not some cute little orphans that God was attracted to or had pity on. We were enemies of God. Romans 5 says we were enemies with God. We were, while we were enemies with God, God reconciled ourselves to us through the death of his son. Enemies is who God decided before the foundation of the world that he would adopt. Adoption is based on the free and sovereign grace of God and is bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Romans 3 tells us that the blood of Christ covers all of the sins of those who believe. So really the mark of adoption is that we actually believe in Jesus Christ. I know there's a bigger discussion to this, and there's many questions that people have about that. But what about those who, who, who didn't believe? Did God choose them to die? There's all kinds of things that spin out from that. Doesn't God love all people? We don't have time to get into all of the nuances of that this morning, but I do want to give you an explanation based on what I believe to be the most consistent in Scripture, knowing that, that in many ways, as we answer this question this morning, there are, there are topics, this, this topic really falls into some, some of the mysteries of, the, of God category. And it can lead to really, I know there's a lot of sensitive or explosive matters in people's hearts when we think about these things. So why doesn't God choose all people? First of all, I want to say this. God has the authority and the right and the power to choose all people. There's no power external to God that would hinder him from making his electing love universal. He's not not powerless to do that. The only thing that governs God choosing is really what we've been talking about today. God's intent to glorify himself. The only governing factor is God bringing glory glory to himself in the most effective way by by possible by displaying all of his divine attributes, which includes his righteous wrath and his justice and his grace and his love. You see, with that in mind, he couldn't have chosen all humans to believe and be saved. I know that's hard to think about, but God was under no obligation to choose anyone. Were he to choose just one person, that would be perfectly gracious. If he would have chosen none, he would have been perfectly just in doing that as well. 
that he chose some of us is a reflection of his sovereign mercy. The second part of that is that this does not make him unloving. Because his love is distinguishing, does not make him unloving. Sam Storms says it this way. Told you I was going to give you everybody. His saving love is bestowed upon and experienced only by those who are in fact saved, i.e. the elect. Although there is surely a sense in which God loves the non-elect, he does not love them redemptively. If he did, they certainly would be redeemed. God loves them, but not savingly, else they would certainly be saved. I think you can think about it this way. God's eternal electing love is not universal, but it's actually particular. It's the idea that it would so correctly and perfectly be displayed for all people. That God in eternity past perfectly figured out and planned in eternity what would demonstrate and declare his love the most by who he chose to adopt. And I know that is a hard concept, and that is a concept that often we don't understand all the nuances of it. And we can talk more about that afterwards if you want. But the truth is that just as we've been looking at, that God is after exalting himself. And the goal of adoption of those who believe is that the glory of God's grace would be praised. That God adopted us in our unworthiness to make his grace and glory look great. That you and I were adopted for the praise and glory of God's grace. That God's action in adopting us is actually radically God-centered and God-exalting. In love, the glory of God is that he adopted children and we were made to see and enjoy him for all eternity, God's glory. Because nothing else would actually truly satisfy our souls. We are adopted by God so that we will rejoice and make much of God. We are adopted by God so that we would see God's grace and see him as our father forever. It's why verse 3 says that, that, as, that as God's kids, we've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's why verse 14 says that we've been sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of its glory. It's this idea of an already but not yet blessing of his love and of his glory, both now and for all eternity, when we're adopted and we live within a perfect harmony with God, the way he originally designed the world. Both now, we get to bring him praise and glory and get to experience that, and we get to experience it in the future. The good news is that, that we're adopted as a family with, with God as our Father, and with this unique elder son as Jesus Christ, and with the Spirit as the, as the source and focus of all of our joy, so that we will take all of eternity, it will take all of eternity for the glory of that God's grace to actually be displayed for a finite people like you and me. And we get to actually start experiencing and declaring that right now. And it's going to take from now until ever to actually understand and experience that glory and grace. 
See, the good news is that God has chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And now we get to confess that before creation of the universe, God thought of you and thought of me. That he fixed his gaze upon us. That he chose us for himself. You and I get to confess that. We get to confess that he didn't choose me because he saw me as a believer. He chose me so that I might become a believer. He didn't choose me because I chose him. He, ch- he chose me so that I would choose him. He didn't choose me because I was holy or good. He chose me so that I might become holy and good. Everything that I am, everything that I hope to be, is rooted in God freely choosing me. My faith, my hope, my work are not the grounds of myself. They're not the grounds of electing grace, but only the effects of his grace. And so because of that, just as we sung earlier, there is no ground for you or me to boast in anything except God. And when we live that way and we understand those things, we get to live in the freedom without the fear of loss of that God loves you or that God is for you. I get to live in the freedom that, that regardless of my own defects, they, God still loves me. It has no bearing on God's love in my life for me. And I get to boast in the truth that it's all about God and not about me. See, the good news is that God is still revealing more of his glory and more of his grace to us right now, even after he chose us. And I want to say a big part of God revealing his glory to us right now is by allowing us, both through prayer and deed and action, participate in seeing him adopt more kids into his family. We don't know who he's calling. We don't know who it is that he's adopting into his family. Yet he calls us to pray and ask him and to seek more of himself, to call him and through his Spirit's leading, we get to live alongside people. And he, God puts people in your story so that you would pray for them and so that you would see them as people that you want him to choose to be a part of his family and adopt into his family. And when we do that, we get to experience more of his glory. He put them in your life for a reason and a purpose, not just so that you would know them, so that he would get more glory. It's what he's about. And you and I get to now experience him and through and we get to experience him and share his story with others and we get to see God's grace experienced in the life of other people and we do that when we get to see that we get to participate that in freedom without duty we become just like the church in Ephesus a gateway for the gospel to go forward in the rest of the region and the rest of the world as we get to watch God's glory grow and grow and grow and we get to praise him more and more and more for his grace because we get to see him adopt more and more kids into his family. There's a reason why God put people in your life and in your sphere of influence. And it wasn't so that you could reach out and save them. It was so that when he does save them, you get to experience his glory and his grace. And when we participate in that, we get to see it. And when we don't participate in it, we miss actually experiencing the joy of God's grace and glory that he intended for us to see. I think the more that we understand and the more that we enjoy our own adoption by God, 
the more we're going to actually live the purpose of the gospel. And we're going to be asking God to show us his glory by adopting more kids into his family. And I want to call us as a church to pray through that and to be a part of that. What grace it is that we get to be a part of bringing God's glory to this city. That's God's grace in your and my life. God does not need you to tell your friends or your co-workers or your family members about him. He doesn't need you to do it. But if you're not participating in that plan for you, you're missing out on seeing his glory. And you're missing out on seeing his glory. You're sitting in the corner when all of the great joy is happening at the party. It's why mission is so important because it's for your own heart so that you would see and enjoy God more. God is the most glorious one and we get to praise him and what loving grace it is that he would actually give us more of himself and reveal more of himself to us rather than just leave us on the sideline after he called us to himself. So we get to walk in that in the city. We get to experience the truth of God being for himself, which is then for us. We get to experience the truth of God being all about his glory as the most loving thing. And we get to live in freedom and security that all of that is taken care of because it was something that happened way before you and I ever stepped on this planet. And that's good news. That's good news to your hearts. It's good news to mine. And I know there's a lot of topics and different pieces that work that out. Um, But I want to remind us that God is always after his glory. And that is actually very loving and actually gracious to us. So Father, we thank you that you are loving and gracious. Father, we thank you that you gave us yourself because it was the most gracious thing to do. Father, we confess that we often run after things that we think are more glorious than you. Father, we confess that we often think that it's about us and that we often seek our own glory and our own praise. Father, I pray that you would change our hearts, that you would move us as a people that would be after your glory and not our own, and that you would move us as a people to pray and to seek and to walk in step with your spirit, to call more people to your family so that we would get to experience your glory and your grace. So, Father, I thank you that before the beginning of time, you didn't just randomly choose us to to put us in the city, but that before you even built the earth, you decided that we would live in this place and in this time because you knew it was a time that, that we in our own personalities, in our own understanding, we get to experience the most of your glory. So, Father, I pray that you would open up our eyes and our hearts to see the truth of those things. Father, I pray that your spirit would continue to, to, to move these things into our heart and that you would give us deep understanding of those things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.